Hello and welcome to the first podcast of The Emigrate. My name is Chris Bullivan. We're recording in Charlottesville, Virginia. On uh, the podcast today, we've got Dominic Hilton from Buenos Aires, um, who's written a number of articles for The Emigrate this month. So Dominic, you came across a book about a Chinese billionaire. I was slumped in a chair um, and I was sort of half watching an episode of the US TV show with a remake of Hawaii Five-0, and uh, it, it was not really engaging me. So, so much so, in fact, I, I reached for a book of inspirational quotes from a Chinese billionaire. I mean, it, it, was, it was sort of so predictable, the episode. Um, whereas the book wasn't because there really wasn't anything in there, either A, about how to make money, which was obviously the reason I was looking at it, tips, that sort of thing. You know, how could I personally become a billionaire and sort of amass a fortune of 300 billion? But no, weirdly, he didn't give away that information. Yeah, I read your um, article and it seemed to have very strange insights that were perhaps too idiomatic. Insights. I don't know if insights is the word I would use, um, but they, there was a lot of stuff like, you know, don't wrestle a fish in the sea. Um, and, you know, something like, if you know, if you cut a chicken's head off, it's only a matter of time before a peacock's tail will fan. Right. That sort well, of that's, thing. That applied to me today. I Did went it? to get a sandwich in a oh. coffee shop and... Um, uh, yeah, actually, no, it, it, it does. So you're now worth billions. Is that what you're saying? So he yeah, actually, he was, I, he was I wrestled the fish. So, you wrestled with the fish. Yeah, there you that, go. That's, first, that, that's your first mistake. Um, and then you've written something about the H-bomb, uh, which lands this week. What, what's going on then? Well, yeah, the H-bomb is, uh, is not exactly what you'd think, um, unless you went to Harvard, which I don't think you did. Um, Never been to Boston. This interview proving that. Um, and the H-bomb is apparently what you say if you went to Harvard, but you're sort of pretending you are uh, ashamed or you're sort of being a bit sort of coy about the fact that you went to Harvard. So similarly, if you went to Yale or if you go to Yale, you say you go to college in New Haven. Apparently, if you say you went to Harvard, you sort of confess, then you have dropped the H-bomb. And this piece is simply a, uh, uh, it's a memoir piece about an argument that I had with my better half um, in the streets of Buenos Aires right at the beginning of the pandemic, just when it started, we were only allowed <clears throat> out on, of our house onto the streets to go shopping. And we were out, allowed out about once a week. And we were standing outside the health food store and I saw a girl walk past wearing a hoodie that says that said, I was kicked out of Harvard. Um, and it said it in English, like a lot of the uh, t-shirts and sweatshirts and hoodies here. And I, I just doubted, I doubted that that was the case. Which brings me on to you asking me about my writing. Does it? Um, 
Yes, it's an, it's an obvious segue. I mean, the royal family, you uh, wrote, I don't know if controversial is the word I'd use, but I, I, just because I think it would scare you. But um, you wrote a piece about the royal family for the emigre that suggested that, that they, it was time they were privatised. Now, that is an argument I don't think I've ever actually heard before, before you presented it. So why? Right. Well, I was watching The Crown, as weren't we all, um, a while back, a couple of years ago, like the really good one, season one and two, before it went downhill. And mm. um, I was obviously struck by the episode where the guy sets up a magazine in London and then says something controversial and gets a sort of like personal invitation to Buckingham Palace. Anyway, that backfired because that hasn't happened yet. I think the two people that read the article um, didn't respond. Somebody said, wait till you watch Narcos. Um, I think a sort of <laughs> dig on uh, me sort of coming up with public policy ideas based on watching Netflix. Um, but Is yeah, there I, any other way that... My understanding is that Prince Charles has suggested that the firm should be a smaller unit of just the nuclear family. What I was simply suggesting was that actually any uh, head of state is a relatively farcical role um, in a mm -hmm. sort of democracy. And I think that's partly because there are now so many people who are well-educated, well-fed, living long lives, who could be contenders for the elite and the ruling class who are outside of it. I think that um, explains a lot of some of the issues that we're having in Western democracies. So I looked at Germany um, and what they do. So they have a president, uh, someone called Fred or Frank or something, and um, he gets two palaces. Yeah, of whom I'd never heard. Yeah, I'd never heard of him. I thought Angela Merkel was the head of the German state and sort of semi curating that at the moment until they figure out what's happening with the election results but that but no they have they've had a, a dozens it's of fred fred okay, thanks yeah i wrote it well banner no I, I don't know if it's fred or frank but it's one of those the point is he's a guy no one's ever heard of and right. he actually is the head of state in Germany. He is the president, one of a dozen or so that they've had since the Second World War. He is elected by a small uh, group of politicians who think, yeah, he'll be all right, so let's shove him in. He gets two palaces, private jets, uh, Mercedes-Benz motorcade, um, uh, multi-million dollar allowance for a private office, and then after a bit of ribbon cutting, retires. So that, that is certainly like an expression of the absurdity of the head of state, but it is a potential model that could be used in the United Kingdom. I mean, the conceit in the crown is that everyone's life is a misery, including the monarch, because of this office of the crown, and everyone's got to defer to it, and it's all deeply unnatural and difficult as it sort of like maneuvers to, uh, in self-preservation across the generations. Okay, um, so today you wrote a piece about an app that I'd never used or being me heard of, which is, what's it called? Tangent. Um, yeah, Tandem. I, I think it's probably... Oh, Tandem. Yeah, like two people on a bike. Well, oh, I see how that 
So, yes, that my mind races when you say that. Um, what what does it do? This app. Uh, Why yeah. do you use it? Um, well, yeah, I'll just try and say this in a a minute. But we've um, uh, I, I recently uh, returned back to the United States uh, with my wife and our daughter, and you know, in the midst of the pandemic, um, I think I met a couple of neighbors, become friends with. But other than that, during lockdown, with doing all of work online through Zoom, um, I wasn't actually getting to meet a whole load of people. I went down to the local taqueria to ask for some tacos. So, cool, this would be a great opportunity to uh, practice some Spanish. So I asked for, you know, dos tacos uh, from the guy behind the counter. He was really miserable, quite grumpy anyway, um, and replied in English. I actually said, which I don't mention the article, I didn't actually order the food. I was so upset, I just left. Um, oh, really? Yeah. You took it that personally? Yeah, I was like, ouch. Wow. So then I thought, oh, I want to be able to practice. Did a Google, found this language app. And it's pretty much the sort of the love child of Tinder and WhatsApp. You put a profile together, create a photo, uh, put photos together, say who you are, what you want to, the language you want to speak, what you want to talk about. And then people just sort of, come to you and just start asking to chat. Sorry, which language do you speak in? And I asked to speak in Spanish. Um, and, my native and how do people reply to you? Uh, in Spanish-speaking countries, how do they reply to you? They will either say hi or the Spanish, which is hola. So sometimes they just talk to you in Spanish? Yeah. They, right, so you just sort of like, say like hi. A text message. Yeah, so you just say hi. You say hi back. How's it going? They say great. How's it going? And then you go. <laughs> it sounds. It sounds. Uh, yes. Yeah. So, so you tragic. go through like dozens of people <laughs> who don't know how to talk anyway, talk about anything, and then. Um, and, you, and you were this desperate for friends that you that you that this is what you did with your time or do. Yeah. Well, I was time. actually initially desperate to be able to improve my Spanish. Yeah. But as I began to practice mind. with people, they developed into friendships. So there's a handful of people I chat to very regularly. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a fascinating app because you can suddenly be chatting to someone in a city called Rosario, Argentina, and then discover they're a Jehovah's Witness and that they're kind of um, living in the suburbs because it's easier. Or suddenly I discovered that there were riots in Cali, Colombia, and that the President Duque had sort of sent in the military. And I hadn't come across that in the news. It is in the news, but I hadn't come across it. So getting these first-hand right. accounts of people across uh, you know, Colombia and the Chile and uh, all across Argentina. It's been really fascinating. And just, um, yeah, social media, that seems to be like a really positive thing because people want to learn a language and they're not sort of wanting to bag on a president. Let me set your mind at rest about the um, the taco guy because I, I assure you that living in Buenos Aires, the, the, I have a similar experience virtually every single day. I will walk in somewhere and I will say in my terrible Spanish, whatever it is that I'm asking for or, or, or whatever else. And, you know, half the people respond to me in, in garbled English because they're so excited at the prospect of, you know, what they see as practicing their English with me. So we have these preposterous conversations in which I'm not making any sense and they're not making any sense in response when, you know, both of us could just revert to our actual native languages and probably figure everything out. Um, but, uh, it's great. And that happens with, with officials. It happens with doctors. Um, and so, you know, I'm, get, I'm always getting myself into all kinds of messes mm. because both of us are determined to speak a language we can't speak. 
in our recording studio here, we've got uh, Ben. I think it's Gillum. How do you say your last name? Ben? Yep, it's Gillum. Hello. So where are you from, Ben? So I am from Ireland. Uh, the island of Ireland, or? Yes, the island. And um, what are you doing in Charlottesville? I'm working for the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety. My main job is writing all the software that uh, records the data. I help manage our website and I write a bunch of apps to just process the data, help our employees view the data and help our employees communicate. I and you, do all you've been getting stuff. a bit of a helping hand with writing your data. Is that right? From a robot? Uh, a robot? Like what? Or like some AI. Oh, <laughs> GitHub Copilot. <laughs> what is that? GitHub Copilot is this new AI that Microsoft just released, which helps developers write code very quickly. Wow. So, so what you're saying that artificial intelligence can actually write code for you? Yes. So. Well, so when they talk about cyber jobs and how everyone's got to learn programming and code, why would they do that if a computer can already do it? So a computer can't do the thinking for you. It can't do the, it's not quite at the level yet where you can say, hey, build me an app that does this. Mm. But it is at a level where if I need to, for most things where I would have to do some simple task in programming, but I can't remember the specific syntax to use for a specific programming language. I would usually go to Google and then Stack Overflow and I'd be able to find my answer there. Whereas with GitHub Copilot, it allows me to just tell it, hey, how do I remove a single object from an object array? And it would write all the code underneath that code comment uh, to remove to do, basically do exactly what I told it mm. to do. So how much time would that save you then if you're doing your thing with your syntax? That, that's, mm, probably saves about five minutes per request. Well, that's very cool because presumably we have loads of requests. It's a bit like if I say to my phone, hey Siri, what's the square root of 103 divided by six? Siri will tell me instantly, which is great because it makes me think I don't need to learn math. Um, <laughs> There's been a lot about automation because they say something along the lines of 30% uh, of 60% of jobs can be automated. 5% of jobs in the United States are going to be lost through automation. But people are going to suddenly find themselves with a lot more time on their hands because across the board, up to CEO, a computer is going to do it. Siri or Alexa is going to do it for you. Is that You're beginning to see that already, are you then? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't necessarily see it as a bad thing. Uh, there are going to be people who are not willing to learn a new skill or who are unable to learn a new skill. But for the majority of people, you just have to expect that your or job both, can be automated. <laughs> or both. <laughs> I mean, Dominic, are you worried that AI is going to take over your writing process? No, that that question sounds like a joke, but it's not a joke. Like, I do actually wonder about this. I was talking to a friend the other day, a writer in London, and he was saying 
that you know the, the technology that you currently see, say when you're using email, where it, it essentially reads the email that you've been sent and it requests it sort of presents a potential response that you could just automatically click return on. Mm. Um, and as you're writing any sentence, it, it, it wants to finish that sentence for you with the obvious colloquialism that would end the sentence. And he was saying that that technology, you know, it's only a matter of, of years until that technology can do a similar thing for even created sentences. Um, and I started to think about, you know, whether I am actually in the work I do a prime candidate for the idea of, of, of sort of, you know, um, of just accepting uh, the idea that these things can be done that way in the future and sort of adding my little bit bits here and there to it. But but actually, maybe I always thought, you see, that I was not going to be the person that would be offered a, um, you know, a, 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 what do you call it? A, a guaranteed wage or whatever it is, that mm. thing. Um, a universal um, basic you know, income. Universal basic income. That's that's what I'm looking for. Well, thank you so much, Dominic Hilton, Buenos Aires, and Ben Gilliam here in Charlottesville, Virginia, our producer. This has been the first podcast from the Emma Gray. Thank you for joining us. Until next time.